Well, we are just moving right along through early history, are we not? <laughs> We're now with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and we see man's propensity towards sin and corruption as we literally are careening out of control and sin is rampant. And as we saw last week, every thought and intention of their hearts was evil. Evil had taken over. But in verse 8, what do we read? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Verse 9 says, And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You know, Noah's name actually means rest or comfort. And as a type of Christ, Noah represents the rest and comfort we have when we place our faith in God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we look back at the creation account, we see that Adam and Eve's first full day was a day of rest. It was the seventh day, the day that the Lord set aside as a day of rest. But they forfeited God's rest when they rebelled and chose to sin. You know, when we look at the Israelites, God was offering them rest to enter into the promised land. That's what Hebrews 4 calls it. But they were unable to enter God's rest. Why? Because of their unbelief, which always leads to sin. In Hebrews 4, 9 through 13, it says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And he's talking about the Israelites. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All of us this morning gathered together, and you look great. You all look really great. But before the Lord, you are laid bare. <laughs> we are open before him. And the Bible tells us his word comes in and divides and reveals, exposes, and we are literally laid bare before him. So we don't ever have to come into his presence hiding or pretending or wanting to be more than we are. We can come into his presence just as we are because he already knows and sees. And we can come to him to receive grace and mercy, to help in time of need because that's who he is in his essence. And that's what he offers us. He's, he's offering us a rest from our work to try to be good enough, to try to earn his favor. He's already given it to us in Jesus Christ. We simply receive it as a gift. You know, those who were alive during the time of Jesus heard him say, come to me, all you who labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He gives us rest. So it's in Christ that we have rest. It is not a coincidence that Noah's name means rest, that in him he was going to grant comfort. His father names him this knowing God's going to move and believing Noah had been set apart to be used by God. So what does the Bible say about Noah? Number one, he had found favor with God. That literally means grace. And in, the, in his day, Enos, the grandson of Adam, 
And during Enos' time, the son of Seth is when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we first have corporate worship. The grandson of Adam, Enos, was still alive and did not die until Noah was over 80. So when you look at these patriarchs, these early followers under the lineage of Seth, they lived such long lives, their lives overlapped. So Enos would have impacted Noah. The Bible also tells us that he's righteous, which means he's justified by faith. And if we're in Christ, we become literally the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible says he was blameless in a morally corrupt world. Now, what does it mean to be blameless? We've said before that's not perfection. It means that we walk with all revealed sin confessed. We walk before the Lord, obeying him, loving him, walking with him, which is the next thing it says. He walked with God, and we know Enoch walked with God and so pleased God that he was not because God took him. So these men both walked with God in a time when the culture around them was corrupt, full of sin, and yet they walked with God. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he's telling him, when I send judgment, even if these three men are there, they would only spare themselves. Which three men did the Lord talk about in Ezekiel 14 that he holds in such esteem? says, then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, if a country sins, a people group sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it and destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves. He says the exact same thing again in verse 20. So what do we know about, we just said what we know about Noah, what do we know about Daniel? The Bible says Daniel was highly esteemed, precious in the sight of God. We know that Daniel so walked with the Lord that he obeyed even with the things he ate. He, he, he obeyed God in what we would assume or would say are the small things so that when the big test came, he was able to stand. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm going to continue to pray just as I always have, going into my room, opening my windows toward Jerusalem and praying three times a day, which would be what had him thrown into the lion's did, but God delivered him because he was highly esteemed in heaven. And what does the Bible say about Job? In Job 1.1, it tells us that Job was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. So it's possible to walk with God in a fallen culture. But it takes trusting him and obeying him so that we can walk blamelessly with him when all around us is falling away. Because God is holy and righteous. Okay, let's look at the corruption of mankind. Let's pick back up in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. You think it was corrupt? It was corrupt, corrupt, it was corrupted. <laughs> it tells us that emphasis there that it was corrupt. What does corrupt mean? It means to spoil, ruin, ruin, pervert, to be rotten, to annihilate. Those are some of the synonyms from Strong's Concordance. 
On Tuesday mornings, every other week, my daughter Lindsay, that lives in Athens, Georgia, teaches in their women's ministry at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. And so we enjoy kind of sharing what we're both teaching over and, and, and praying together. And so she called me this morning and she's like, Mom, this is so good. They're actually doing our study on John. And she was teaching this morning on John 11 and 12, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' death, and then Mary anointing the Lord. And she said, you know, we were, we were talking yesterday and I was talking to her about corrupt and what corruption means. And she said, there's a physical picture of corruption in death. Look at Lazarus. What happened in John chapter 11 when they get to the tomb and what does Martha say? Lord, there's going to be a stench. <laughs> He's been dead for four days. What happened to his physical body? It was corrupted, right? Yes, it was deteriorating. It was rotting because it was dead. That's what happens to us spiritually when we allow sin because what the Bible says, what? Before we come to Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're rotten. We're corrupted. But the sad news is, even as believers, once we become the righteousness of God in Christ, we can still make corrupt choices. We can still be, we can still be influenced by the world instead of influencing the world. We should be the influencers. We should be living so differently. You do not have to be relevant to the current culture. In fact, I want to suggest to you that to have the greatest impact, we need to be very counter-cultural. We don't need to fit in with the culture. We need to stand out from the culture. But our love for others will be so great that they're going to be drawn to this peace, joy, and purpose that should flow forth from our life. We love those lost and corruption and sin. Why? Because the enemy has them in bondage. They're deceived. Their minds have been darkened. And we must take the light of the truth of the gospel into that darkness that they might be set free. So that's our job in the midst of the culture in which we live. And our spiritual death, rottenness, and corruption is a stench in the nostrils of our God. You know, the other account in Genesis that records God's wrath being poured out on sin is in Genesis 19, and it's on Sodom and Gomorrah. If you think about what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's probably a descriptor for the culture in Noah's day as well. You know, the Bible says the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Our sin cries out. To God. If you've got your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. I want us to look at verses 4 through 9. Because Peter makes reference to Noah and the time of Noah and on God's judgment. Verse 4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So Noah wasn't just building the ark. He was also preaching coming judgment. A preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter... And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, not just from the ungodliness around us, but from temptation, 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So we know that God is able to preserve those who put their trust in him, but he also will bring judgment upon sin. Sin cries out to a righteous God just as the blood of righteous Abel cried out to the Lord in Genesis 4 verse 10. Can we just pause a moment and think about the blatant and rampant sin of our own culture and how it also is crying out to the Lord? And can we choose to be like Noah and Daniel and Job and Enoch and walk with God in such a way that we will be pleasing to him, precious in his sight? Let's pick back up in verse 14, and we see that Noah gets the instructions for the ark. Well, I don't think I read verse 13. I'll go back to it. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark... 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish." But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of if, and if every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him. So he did. I love that. Noah did all that God commanded him. It made me think of Moses. And when I went back and looked at Exodus 39 and 40, I counted how many times it said Moses did exactly what God commanded him. 16 times in two chapters as he's erecting the tabernacle and placing the articles of the tabernacle in place. So we, we are to do everything God has commanded us. The Bible tells us the ark was made of gopher wood. Now, we don't know what gopher wood is. Most theologians and commentaries say they don't really have a clue. Obviously, it was a durable wood. Some think it may have been like a cypress wood. But we do know it was covered with pitch. So that would have been like a tar-type substance inside and out, which would have made it waterproof. But the Hebrew word for pitch here is a different word. When pitch is described in other places in Scripture, a different word is used. The Hebrew word here is not the common one, which is zepheth, but is kafir, which is translated 70 times in the Old Testament to make atonement. Now, what happened on the day of atonement? The high priest went into the Holy of Holies. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there the sins of the people were covered for another year. So the Ark really is a picture of Christ because all who were in the ark, Noah and his family, were protected from the wrath of God. They were safe. It was a refuge for them. But they, their sin was atoned for. It was covered, which caused the wrath of God not to fall 
upon them. The ark also was furnished with rooms, and the word for rooms there is actually really translated in other places, nests. Now that's interesting. He says, make an ark of gopher wood, rooms, literally nest, shalt thou make in the ark, Genesis 6, 14. In every other passage in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word G-N occurs, it's translated nest. Arthur Pink said in his commentary, the thought here suggested is that in Christ we have something more than a refuge. We have a resting place. We are like birds in their nests, the object of another's loving care. The Bible also tells us Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And in the Weymouth translation of the Bible, it says, In my Father's house are many resting places. Now, is that not beautiful? So Noah and his family were able to rest once they went inside that ark. And God cared for them, protected them from the storm raging outside. In Christ, we are protected, not only from the second death, from the lake of fire, but we're also protected from all that's going on around us. And if we will choose to trust and obey the Lord, we can walk in his rest and peace, regardless of what's going on around us. That's what God has given us in Christ Jesus, because the work has already been done. He has done the work for us. Once Noah had completed the building of the ark and gone inside, there was nothing more for him to do. The work was done, and God protected them. You also read that the ark had one door, just as the tabernacle had one door. And Jesus himself said what in the New Testament? I am the door. I am the door to the sheepfold. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's one way to God. There's one way to salvation, and it is through the door, Jesus Christ. All Noah had to do was obey, and God did the rest. He was secure because he believed, and he obeyed. He acted out of what he believed to be true about God, which is what we all do. So we can look at our actions and know what we really believe. We can profess to believe something that we're not actually living out in our life, right? When our actions don't line up with what we profess to be true. But when we really believe it, when we're really trusting God, we're going to act out of that belief. Now, we looked at in our workbook trying to kind of grasp, get our head around how big this thing was. Now, I can't imagine a man building an ark the size of this one. But it, the ark was the length of one and a half football fields, kind of gives us conceptual idea of what that would be like, as tall as a four-story building and had three floors or stories. Well, um, a few years ago, Steve and I visited the Creation Museum and the ark encounter. And I've got a couple of pictures that I wanted you guys to see. That was what we saw of the ark as we drove up. It's mammoth, it's huge. Then you've got a picture of us standing in front of the door that's the door <laughs> we were standing in front of inside the ark. And then you've got kind of a composite picture that shows you the ark, what it must have looked like for his family to be gathered together there. And then do you see that picture on the right there shows that it says there were windows, a cubit from the top. So a cubit, most, most agree, is around 18 inches. So 18 inches from the top, there would have been windows around which light would have come through. So there must have been an opening from the top to the bottom where the rooms would have been around it and the opening for the light, the shaft of light, to go down even to the bottom of the boat to grant light. And because people were vegetarians, the animals weren't eating each other or men at this point. <laughs> They're all eating 
you know, vegetables and fruits and the things, the grains. So they easily, because of the light around there, could have had herb gardens, things planted. When you go to the Ark Encounter, um, Ken Ham's representation of what the Ark would have looked like, they show you how to bring kinds in means every kind of dog, you know, every species of dog would not have been there. There probably would have been a couple of kinds of dogs that all the rest of them have eventually come from. So that's why you can, you can understand the ark would have been big enough to house the animals to be able to reproduce and literally repopulate and recreate the earth after they come off of the ark. So they're going to enter the ark in chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, or literally, come in, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Let's keep going. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, that's going to be important to note this date here because we're going to see when he comes off how long they're on that boat. So it's the 600th year of his life, the second month on the 17th day. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him and the Lord closed it behind him. So the Lord closed the door. The ark was God's provision of salvation for Noah and his family and the animals. And there are three arks mentioned in scripture. This is really fascinating. And this came from Arthur Pink's commentary on Genesis. The ark of Noah secured those within it from the outpoured wrath of God. The ark of bulrushes in Exodus 2-3, protected the young child Moses from the murderous designs of Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that I mentioned on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, which covered the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant um, sheltered the two tablets of stone on which were inscribed the holy law of God. Each ark speaks of Christ. And putting the three together, we learn that the believer is sheltered from God's wrath, Satan's assaults, and the condemnation of the law. The only three things in all the universe which can threaten or harm us. Isn't that powerful? So in Christ, we are protected from the wrath of God. 
We are protected from the accusations of the enemy. And we are protected from the condemnation of the law. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. I love also that God invited Noah to enter in. Now, not all translations translate it come, but that's literally what the word is. It is to come in, come enter, to lead in. And we know that God does not coerce, he invites. This is the first time the word come is used in scripture, and it recurs over 500 times in the rest of the Bible. Jesus would later say, come unto me, and I will give you rest. And the Bible ends in Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. All are invited, but not all come. And we need to be faithful to issue the invitation because that is what God has called us to. You know, Enoch named his son Methuselah. We said last week he's, you know, he's set apart because he lived the longest of anybody. And Methuselah's name actually means when he is dead, it shall be sent. That's what his name means. So it was a prophetic naming. Um, and it literally means the deluge. Arthur Pink went on to say, a divine revelation then was memorialized in this name. The world was to last as long as this son of Enoch lived. And Methuselah just happened to die in the year of the flood. The animals were drawn by God to the ark. You know, it's interesting how animals can sense danger. I got online and was looking at, because I know like people who have dogs, like therapy dogs, those kind of things, they sense when they're, you know, their owner is upset or they're sick or whatever, and they won't leave them. They'll stay beside them. They just have this sense of what's going on. Well, I, I saw online several articles about how animals sense an earthquake before it happens and that how this whole herd of animals may go up to a higher place, like on a mountain, before a tsunami, and a, an earthquake out in the ocean, and a tsunami hits, and people will be wiped out, and all the animals survive. How did they know? They had this sense that something's going on. Well, God has given them that, and their, their intuition, it's just like how, how birds migrate. You know, it's, it's built into how God's created them, and he's granted them this, but you know what? They don't get to choose. In fact, I was reading one author, and he was talking about how birds that migrate, maybe, you know, say, to South America, they can't say, this year, I think I'm going to go to San Diego. They go to the same place every single time, you know, where we get to choose, which is part of what sets us apart and makes us what it, what, what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, but the animals were drawn, so we know God put in them a sense Something's going on. And then he obviously called them. But we've seen it before. We saw it in Genesis chapter 2 when God called, caused all the animals to really file before Adam. And Adam named them. And they came in pairs then also, male and female. Because it was after that that Adam realized, whoa, everything in creation has a counterpart but me. And God allowed him to recognize his need before God met that need for him. So here again, we're seeing God's calling them. He, he, had, he had said the animals will come to you. So God's calling them. He doesn't, you know, I think as a child or younger, I thought he was out there having to wrangle these animals and get them on the ark. Like, how in the world did he do that? And now we see, no, God just calls them and they come because he's the creator and they file before him and they literally march up into it. And Noah goes in with his family and then God closes the door 
It also shows us that there will be an end to God's patience and forbearance. That there will be a day when the door closes on the rest of humanity, when Christ returns and salvation will no longer be offered. And we need to be offering people a chance to come in, to enter in Christ before that door is closed. You know, there's evidence all over the world that there was a worldwide flood. The fossils prove it, but also literally in hundreds of civilizations, there are flood stories. But if you just think about it, if only one family comes off the ark and they repopulate the whole earth, you better believe that story is going to be passed down. I mean, my goodness, they just experienced everyone they had known, everything around them dying, being covered no more, no longer existing, and they came out of the ark to start all over. So literally every civilization has a flood story. But also Jesus talked about a worldwide flood. Let's turn in our, in our Bibles to Matthew 24. Let's begin in verse 37. Jesus said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to rapture his church out just like Enoch was taken. And then the great tribulation will begin. Seven years that Jesus called wrath like the world has never seen. And that's why I believe the church will be raptured is because it's consistent with the character of God and with how he's treated his people throughout biblical history. He has always protected his people from his wrath, whether it's Noah, Lot and his family, the Israelites in Egypt when the plagues came and God protected them. He has always protected his people and he's given us his word and his witnesses, believers and preachers and teachers that are speaking a coming judgment, that Jesus Christ is coming back. The obvious question is, have you entered the door to salvation? Are you safe? Have you entered into Christ? Because he goes on to say in verse 42, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. That's what the world around us says, right? You Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. And yet I look at our culture and I recognize how quickly the end could come. When I look at the rebellion, the sin, the godlessness of our culture, how those who believe and profess truth and Christ are now seen as a threat, it's called hate speech because we're speaking the truth of a God who's holy and righteous And yet God has given us his word. He's given us biblical history. We can validate the events of scripture through archaeology, 
and historical records. So we know that the Bible is accurate, inerrant, and all-powerful because it's God-breathed and it's still breathing. So we submit ourselves to the Word of God and we choose to believe it, to take God at His Word. But we can't live a set-apart life separate from this world apart from the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you are submitted to the Spirit of God and you offer yourself as that living sacrifice, which is wholly consumed, nothing held back, the Bible says that makes you holy and acceptable. So we offer ourselves to him as that living sacrifice and then he fills us to overflowing with his spirit. And then we're able to live in the world and not be conformed to the world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because we think differently. We believe differently. And because we believe differently, we're going to act differently. And the Bible says then we will be able to prove, to discern, to know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. May it be our heart's desire to walk as Enoch did, to walk as Noah did, to walk as Daniel did, to walk as Job did, to find favor with God and to literally become the righteousness of God in Christ because we are in Christ, our ark of safety, salvation, our refuge, our rest is in Christ Jesus. So consequently, we don't have to worry about what's happening around us or speculate about when he's coming back because he just said, you're not going to know. There's no way you can know because he's going to come at a time that you don't anticipate. He's coming. People are going to be giving in marriage and going about their daily life and refusing to believe, but he's, he's coming. He's coming. Are we ready? The Bible closes with Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. May we say that this morning? May we say to him, come, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. If you don't know him, enter in today. Do not wait another moment to confess that you're a sinner. You've broken God's laws and you're separated from him, but you want to come in and you know that the only way in is through Jesus Christ. Confess him as your Lord and Savior and call on the name of the Lord. And the Bible says he will save you. Your name will be written down in the Lamb's book of life and you will enter into Christ and you will be just as secure as Noah and his family were inside that ark. You will be covered because your sins have been atoned for. The blood of Christ will cover you and you will not experience the second death. In fact, we will experience the new heaven and the new earth, and all that God has prepared in the place of rest, the mansions, the resting place that he has for us.